0: Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs, and I'm Dominic Grace,
1: and I'm Eric Hoffman,
0: and we are continuing our look at the movies of the great Akira Kurosawa with uh, a pair of uh maybe lesser-known films, but equally beautiful films to some of his other movies, "I Live in Fear" and Akira Kurosawa's "Dreams." So, Eric, why don't you start by telling us why you decided it'd be a good idea to pair these two together?
1: Well, uh, aside from the obvious connection that they share with nuclear paranoia, <laughs> um, at least one one of the eight stories in Akira Kurosawa's dreams is about uh, a nuclear catastrophe. Um, and then I Live in Fear, obviously, is a, I would even go so far as to call it a nuclear age parable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, I guess there's a it's an odd pairing in that sense that they they don't share too much in common on the surface, but there does seem to be an environmental message in both of these films. Uh, there's also and this is common in all of Kurosawa's movies, uh, but there's also themes of generational conflict in these movies um, of old japan versus new japan um, about how the war affected the japanese psyche so there there's i think a number of common threads between these two that make them an interesting pairing spark some interesting conversation
0: both movies are particularly autobiographical too Kersai has done so much about his fear of nuclear war. And it's such a strong recurring theme in his work that um, it's an interesting pairing to put these two together and have them really kind of reflect on each other. I Live in Fear really stands out compared to any of the other films he made, especially during his golden era, as being maybe the one real tragedy of all his films. Uh, and it's fascinating because the two movies he'd done before this are Kiru, Seven Samurai, and then after this, he did Throne of Blood. So, three of his best known, most beloved films. And in the middle of it is this, this kind of very kind of dark, tragic story about a man's gradual dissolution brought on by his fear of nuclear holocaust, among other things. And his character is so complicated.
1: I and thought then, it was interesting.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. And then dreams is just a whole, a whole bunch of about well, eight stories that all kind of more or less revolve around disappointment in some way. I and mean, we can dig into that with that, whether that's even the right word for it, but there's, it, it's, a, it, they're all stories that are in some ways, either about unhappiness with the way the world has turned or, happiness with where you fit in in a larger society i mean anyway, i'll leave it at that and, and let you guys explore it too
1: <laughs> another interesting uh commonality between these two films is that they're both i think challenging uh films for audiences um I, I, for for completely different reasons i mean i live in fear is challenging because of its subject matter and and uh as you said, how incredibly dark it is. Uh, uh, Dreams is challenging because it's an atypical narrative structure. There are also one one commonality that they share, which didn't, didn't really occur to me until just now. Uh, you mentioned Seven Samurai, and this was the first film of Kurosawa's to come out after Seven Samurai. And Dreams was the first film to come out after Ron. So these were films which followed upon two of what are considered to be his two greatest films, which is interesting. Because a lot of times filmmakers will make a commercially, particularly commercially, and critically successful film, and then they'll follow it up with something that maybe was a project that they couldn't previously get funding for because it wasn't commercial enough. You see this time and time again with mm-hmm. filmmakers and i can't help but wonder if that's the case with both of these features and you said they're incredibly personal films you know i can't imagine many people are well japanese cinema is economically much different from hollywood but i'm sure it was something of a risk of the studios to release these films i know dreams had quite a bit of hollywood money behind it it's it was spielberg. It's amblin.
2: amblin wasn't it spielberg yeah. yeah amblin
1: yeah right spielberg produced it right
0: specifically right. took it to warner and said please release this i'll pay for whatever we need to pay for and right they got exclusive international release rights right and was i think it, that yeah it was it was an ex- extremely expensive film to mount and the only way they could afford it is because almost everyone worked for scale
1: there's a huge cast in that film
0: there's a there's a making of video on the criterion dvd And uh, it, like the scenes in the forest with the, where the wolves are walking along, not the wolves, the The foxes, foxes, excuse me, has maybe 200 people involved in one way or another.
2: Yeah. And the funeral must have been something like that, too. And that was a significant number of people in the parade. Mm -hmm. And a lot of elaborate costuming. It certainly wasn't cheap. And. Japanese cinematists seem tend to be it seems to me anyway more um i guess you might say economically conservative than a lot of Hollywood stuff. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly paid off with dreams because it's a gorgeous film to look at. I think one of the things that really struck me it was totally off a different tangent actually is watching a mid 1950s Kurosawa up against dreams was man, why did he wait so long to start using color? <laughs> yeah. 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 Because he's just got such a command of color. And I mean, admittedly, it. I Live in Fear is a very stark, very bleak film. So I don't think it being in color would have necessarily uh, been as big a deal as, you know, color in some of those other earlier films might have been. But it was still, it did really strike me because it, doing it back to back like that, it was, yeah, this is um, uh, a tool that he left out of his toolbox for so long.
1: Especially as a painter. You know, so painters yeah. are so fundamentally aware of the the power of of color yeah. to convey emotion and meaning, and that oh. he chose to, I guess, delay that. I mean, well, we had talked to about do, this
0: a bit yeah. when we talked about Dodesca Den and how yeah, it was the sure. first color film. It was just spectacular. His use of color was immediately masterful. Keep going. Eric, Den would have
1: been a great would have made a great pairing with Dreams in retrospect.
2: Yeah, there are some interesting sort of parallels with some of the uh the more overtly um not metafilmic, but the more overtly, you know, artificial elements to it, like the scene where we have um the walking to the paintings right. for instance. Actually I was watching that and I was thinking, you know, I went to the uh the van Go immersive experience thing a couple of years ago and it looks like Kurosawa beat them to the punch on that.
1: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, about thirty years. Yeah, yeah.
2: And the, the the sort of surrealistic imagery in the uh, uh, the nuclear fallout one. I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, where you know this, these are the colors, the color of strontium, and uh, that was that had the same kind of um, really intense, supersaturated use of color that he did in, uh, in Dan Um Fuji in
1: red. Yeah, Mount
2: Fuji's red. Yeah, that yeah that that was uh, is, that was going.
1: Which is uh, which is the title of a Hokusai print. Mm. Oh. Yes. I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Again, yeah. that's Kurosawa as the the painter, right? Yeah. But all throughout Dreams, he's paying homage to all sorts of uh Jap- Japanese classical Japanese uh references are being made all throughout that film in Shintoism, uh yokai, um War ghosts is a common theme in 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 Jap- Japan. Not necessarily even the war, but anytime there's a enormous tragedy, even Fukushima, uh, there's folk tales of ghosts. Um, there, you know, in the aftermath of Fukushima, for example, there were these stories that were being passed around uh, communities around Fukushima of uh, taxi drivers that were picking up. Uh, these these people, uh, and uh, in the region of Fukushima, who are asking them to drive them away from that area. And then when they got to their destination, they were mysteriously had vanished from the back seat of their taxis. so there's there's this common theme in in Japan where anytime there's this enormous national tragedy where it results in many deaths, there's often these stories that get told of these ghostly specters and so you have that here in dreams as well and then Um, that's
0: all intertwined with his own life story correct which then gives it this whole other element of course as being this man inside of a larger society
2: yeah and a a man inside of art too i mean yeah all the characters in that film are kurosawa analogs in one way or another um and i mean the most obvious one is the, the the van gogh one where not only does he you know put his analog in with martin scorsese of all people but literally puts, puts the character inside images uh inside the film um very sort of uh meta self-conscious I, I i've always thought that scorsese is uh van gogh was an interesting casting choice i'm not really yeah. sure what to make of it but
1: I, I love that segment um you know it's this whole idea of the relationship to art and yeah. Kurosawa's relationship to art yeah. and how integral it is to his own being. And so Van Gogh becomes, he used to use the term analog, and Van Gogh becomes that uh, for Kurosawa. Here is this artist uh who, interestingly enough, was uh, very influenced by Japanese art. Van Gogh was a collector of Japanese prints and... and Japanese style painting was a major influence on his, his work. So there's that cultural uh, connection that Kurosawa is making, but it's also this identification with Van Gogh as the pure artist, you know, the artist whose life and work are of a piece. And so, so intimately intertwined that um, one can't, really be one one aspect can't really be addressed independent from the other it has to be taken as a whole the life of the man and the life of the artist and he he visualizes that he makes that, that metaphor like you said dominic of of his analog uh the character who encounters van gogh by stepping into the painting and so he's actually become a part one with uh the van gogh's art uh, and so it's just this marvelous meditation on how how intimately art impacts us and how on 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 such a I, I keep using the word, but yeah, uh, on such an intimate level, how art impacts us and affects us um, emotionally, and psychologically, um, and
2: even physically. I mean, that was I...
1: physically right, and physically, right. and and van Gogh, of course, is a a very good example of that, because uh, you get that sense of the physicality in his artwork. Um, he, he's a very textural painter. Um, mm-hmm. And if you know anything about Van Gogh, he was he was slowly sort of poisoning himself uh, because yeah. it was a habit for the artists to chew on their brush to loosen the paint off of it. And of course, I think there was some sort of lead in the paint, and so he was, uh, you know, they, they theorized that part of his madness resulted from lead poisoning. I mean,
2: he was literally uh, killing himself doing his art.
1: And yeah. he was literally killing himself doing his art. And also, mm-hmm. you know, of course, chopping off the ear and everything. It just, it's just Oh yeah. That that encounter, you know, that Van Gogh has that very
2: physical sort of element to that. Him.
1: But also that... I love I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Well I, I loved that this metaphor that they used of of the locomotive where he says I'm I'm like a locomotive. Yeah. Yeah, I keep myself, because a locomotive, when you think about it, it's this beautiful, aesthetic machine, right? Mm-hmm. They they have a, but they're totally functional. The The aestheticism of the locomotive is almost incidental to its pragmatic use. Here's it's a question a... for
2: you on that, Eric. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> this just dropped into my head. Um, that creates a really fascinating link with the Descadet.
0: Oh, with the trolley, yeah, with the
2: trolley, right? I
0: sure. just wondering if you
2: thought about that because I mean the, no, know, that no, that just did not occur to me. Please, yeah. that well, I mean, really the entire uh, uh, set, the entire uh, dwelling place for the, the kid with the trolley is Kurosawa paintings, right? He did it all right. that mm-hmm. art. Um, right. So there's you know a very intimate connection between you know Kurosawa, uh, I think, and that character, and you know that that character who. Basically, lives in his imagined world of being a, a trolley driver going through the village, and you know, having uh, people laugh at you or contemptuous of you or, or angry at you just like flows off him. It didn't flow off Kurosawa himself, obviously, but I mean that I think is another interesting uh, way to think about it. But I don't think we talked about when we talked about Dan, um, of of him as a kind of a metaphor for uh, for the artist um, as well. You know, the pursuit of you know the path that you want to pursue. Even at the cost of, you know, being judged uh, mentally competent, um, right. uh, and the in in that context, even the machine itself is imaginary, right? But I know one of the things that we did talk about is the beautiful way that that Kurosawa uses the mise the uh the, the you know the, the mise en scene where you know you can't see the trolley, but you hear the sound effects when you... so it's it's being evoked, um, yeah. and I I think I know I've talked before about. The, you know kurosawa the technician right and that metaphor sure. of the locomotive i think really works there too because so much of kurosawa i don't think that i don't think that he comes across at all as a forster mechanical director but so much yeah. of what he does is so carefully crafted that there is almost a machine-like precision to it um so i hadn't even thought about the locomotive thing in, in that context until you mentioned it so yeah i think that you're really onto something there i think dreams also... is also dreams is especially crafted i should say go ahead eric yeah
1: well, I think there's also, to carry that metaphor further of the locomotive, the, the locomotive, you always think of that, you know, that lonely, you know, uh, um, the the lonely uh, cry of the locomotive in the distance oh, yeah, at night. Right? Yeah, you, it's... you hear it going through the valleys and you hear it, uh, you hear the w- lonesome whistle blow. And uh, yeah. there's also the, the, a locomotive is it's on its tracks it's on this one path yeah there's this there's this there's a single-mindedness to it there's yep. a sense of dedication there's a sense of loneliness and all of those things to me speak to the life of the artist you know you you're you have the single-minded dedication to what it is that you're doing you're on one path you're following it uh you know with without leaving it you know you, you don't even have the choice to leave it if you wanted to Right. And and the, you know, the, the train isn't being steered, the tracks steer the train. Right. So so you you follow where where it is that the tracks lead you. And and it, it, it's such a beautiful metaphor for for the artist, for the life of the artist and for the passion for it and the dedication and the single mindedness. All of those things, you know, resonated to me. Uh, it's just such a beautiful, and then and then when he at the end of that sequence, when he's outside the painting, and of course he's looking yeah. at uh, one of the last paintings. I think it's the last painting that Van Gogh painted of the crows yep. rising up out of the uh, field, uh, which is one of his his best known paintings. And then knowing that he essentially committed suicide uh, days or weeks after he completed that painting, mm-hmm. um, and then you hear that. Lonesome whistle blow, you know, yeah. as as the artist is looking, at and then he takes his hat off and holds it up to his chest, yep. which is you know at that that idea of someone who has died. You know, you you remove your hat, and, and he does that- it again later in the film at, at, during the funeral yep. uh, procession. Yep.
2: Yeah, <laughs> to so me, lovely.
1: it's just
2: so lovely. To me, the thing that always stuck with me about dreams is is the the Van Gogh sequence. And the question about, you know, why are you wearing the bandage? Oh, well, I was working on a self-portrait and I couldn't get the ear right. So I cut it off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is a yeah. particularly pointed and succinct comment on the dedication to art at the cost of everything.
1: Yeah. Right? Keep in mind, Kurosawa uh, attempted suicide at one point. I mean, yeah. you know, after Dadeskadan.
2: Yeah. I mean, years was, later, uh, but it's, it's an interesting sort of anticipation of his own uh, struggles in that regard.
0: Well in fact, the whole sequence is basically him realizing he can never make it as a painter even though that was his youthful dream. So in some ways making films was his second uh, opportunity, his second goal right the, the thing he was kind of taking as something he he uh, didn't care as much for at least at the beginning right not his main thing uh, and the fact he ended up being such a master. Uh, still in his heart, you can see he loved to be a painter. He did continue painting all his life, but he always felt he was second best. And so the meeting with Van Gogh was also very bittersweet for him because he's he is himself in awe of the same genius that uh, the other directors seem to hold him in. So there's some irony in someone like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas a little earlier with Ron being the one to sponsor his work, holding him up as as a venerated master, when you know he doesn't necessarily
2: see himself that way. Yeah, and Lucas was involved in, in dreams too. ILM did the, uh, yeah. you know, the effects. I, Jason, do you think that his casting of Scorsese um, as Van Gogh might be relevant in that, in the, in the regard of what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, I've been struggling with how though.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of it, but it seems like it has to be because he is a really famous film director
0: (laughs) who got to do the thing he wanted to do. Always wanted to be a film director. Yeah. And right. His life passion is obviously around filmmaking and preservation of film. Right. He's just as well known for his work around preservation of great film as he is for, for directing. So maybe that's part of it too, is he's the man who's uh, synonymous with film preservation from films around the world.
1: Maybe yeah. also Kurosawa is trying to make the connection that a filmmaker is just as, as vibrant an artistic uh, force as a painter of, of Van Gogh stature.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, Scorsese is a fearless filmmaker. You know, he's done an awful lot of uh, films that really push... Um, the edges of the media. maybe not, maybe not so much in terms of visual stuff. I mean, he's not like Kurosawa so much, but I mean, you know, things like uh, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, um, Goodfellas, maybe Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, probably more than anything else. Are I'm, films that really? Yeah, I'm, were, not, uh... I'm
1: not, I'm not drawing the right. I'm not, I'm not drawing the connection specifically between Scorsese and Van Gogh. Oh, okay, yeah, but I, I think, I think what I meant to say, what I was implying was that kurosawa is making that visual connection by by placing a filmmaker in the role of van gogh what he's saying is that filmmaking can be just as vibrant
0: well and he's he's not just any filmmaker too he's a filmmaker who's really his whole reputation is, is around him making the films he wants to make and being acclaimed for being the filmmaker who makes the films he wants to make you know casino and raging bull and uh Oh, I, I was going to call out The Departed, but that was obviously before this, or after this. Uh, after Hours, you know, his even his remake of Cape Fear has got its own feel to it. Um, I don't want, yeah, L- Last Temptation of Christ was before this, of course, too. So in some ways, he's the yeah, yeah. filmmaker who took some slings and arrows as well. Um, anyway, I, I'm not sure what that all amounts to other than... He's, oh. Uh, He's a friend who he cast in a a role that really brings out this kind of – it's more than just a
2: stunt casting, though. I don't think – yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I confess I did not go and do any research um, into what people have said about this film. So for all I know, there's some article somewhere that devotes 20 pages to explaining the complexities of why Scorsese is in the film. But I didn't didn't go looking for that kind of stuff. I I tend – when we do this, I tend to prefer just to react to the films themselves more than to Mm – you know the sort of critical context uh, that they've been put in by other people who've talked about them, to try not right. to be you know influenced. But in this case, I'm really I really am curious. I might actually go looking for that afterwards.
1: <laughs> I wonder what you guys made of of Akira Kurosawa's dreams. Now, obviously, speaking of autobiography, these eight vignettes are all based upon actual dreams that Kurosawa had. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he kept a dream journal or or what or if these were just particularly memorable dreams that he had you know written down over the years and then uh, took from them I again, like you Dom I, I try not to do burden myself with with too much scholarly apparatus <laughs> uh, before I watch a film but uh, I, I'm curious uh, as to how the film, came together if this was something that he had gestating for a long time uh he does tend to do that you know kurosawa like for example uh uh dersu was a film that he wanted to make since the 1930s and yeah. you know 40 something years later he finally got around to making it so um you know it'd be interesting to know like over what period of time he had these dreams you know were some of them from when he was younger well, well, yeah, I mean the the, the first movie. stream
0: is from when he was younger.
1: Oh it was okay so fill, fill These us are in dreams that. he had all
0: his life and okay. in fact uh, I I'm not sure if they if it's translated in the DVD or not or in the in the what streaming service um but he is actually at his family's house in the first scene. There's a sign at the gate that says Kurosawa and the woman who plays his mother was specifically instructed how his mother would act. So she's supposed to be a kind of simulacrum of his mother. Um, and so this is a dream he had had for a long time. And then the, the story with the dolls um, centers around his relationship with an older sister uh, who tragically died, I forget from what, in her teen years, I think she had a cancer. And he was very close with her. Uh, he, She was probably his closest sibling. And she loved the doll ceremony. And they had quite a collection of dolls in their house. So they would frequently play with them. And he apparently had long memories of uh, playing with his sister. And this is one way that he had kind of continued to have dreams about her over the years. Uh, the story about the book. Uh, the story about the world war ii soldiers is an interesting one because it may there's some question whether it's actually his dream or something he and his friend what's his name Noboru honda i think is his name shiro honda is honda Yeah you know, the one who directed godzilla and many of the other but they yeah, were
1: great,
0: they were really great good friends going back many years working at mm-hmm. toho and um he served in the in the war he but Honda was drafted in like the 30s to join the Japanese army, and so this was something that Honda had been dreaming about and shared with Kurosawa in the making of documentary. There's a he has books of dream journals, oh, okay, and he had taken the ones that really were the most resonant with him and made them into the ones the the stories for the movie. And there is a initial there's a a original ending that was never filmed. It was actually scheduled and scripted, where they call they call the character I, because uh, Kurosawa is really writing this from a first person standpoint. I'll just read it from the Criterion commentary. The story was to show I waking up in a foreign city and hearing the sounds of artillery fire and airplanes overhead. Concerned another world war had finally broken out, he would instead discover that world peace had broken out, out, and these were the sounds of celebration. Reports from every country would joyfully announce the incredible news. All nuclear weapons, without exception, will be dispatched to a dead planet in outer space never to return but well, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't get the financing for it. They scrapped it, mm-hmm. and instead they, they we got that beautiful ending with the old man uh, who was a The old man was in his 80s, and I was a, a popular actor with Ozu. He'd done a number of Ozu films over the years.
1: Recognize did you
0: him recognize him, Eric? I did. I did. Yeah. And the Village of the Watermill story... Chi Chi Ryu, is his name. Yes, yeah. Uh, he's, and they, he's he one had of like coaches. a seven minute yeah. monologue at the end. There's a mm-hmm. b- beautiful story that he, he so the Kurosawa filmed it as a long seven minute unbroken shot and then cut it up and set up these interstitials. But he re- he memorized the full seven minute long speech even at that, that advanced age. And at the very end, when he finished it, it paused for a moment, and everyone stood up and cheered for him. So it was a wonderful story.
1: He played the father in uh, Tokyo story.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So he was yeah. apparently quite beloved by everybody.
1: Oh, he's a legend. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, so I, yeah, I, I mean
1: would have been right. a Yeah, that that would ending would have been very, you know, like sci fi. <laughs> and it actually would have uh, even uh strengthened the connection between I live in fear and and dreams.
2: Yeah. A bit. Yeah, especially given, you know, that, that that I was thinking that as you were talking about it, Jason, you know, the final sequence in, uh, in um, I Live in Fear where uh, he's he was basically imagined, you know, a science fiction solution, right? Humanity has escaped to this other planet, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of the reverse of right. we'll, we'll send all the nukes away, we'll send all the people away so that, uh, um, but then, you know, the, the sun through the window being the, uh, him seeing it as in effect the, the nuclear burst. Um, and the earth burning uh not a new metaphor for the for nuclear um armageddon at all but really interesting i, I want uh, that there's that sort of you know undeveloped connection there
1: i had... I thought that ending was a, a lovely uh metaphor yeah. though because the yeah. the uh the uh flag you know the, the japanese flag is is the sun the red sun yeah. Yep. And the sun is the symbol of, of Japan. Yep. And so for the sun to symbolize total destruction, you know, draws a pretty <laughs> bleak picture. Well, you know, that
2: that's how it's used in like barefoot gen, for instance, right?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right.
2: I have no idea of how prevalent that might be as a as a, as a as a Japanese image, but I mean that was one of the things that struck me when I was watching the movie as wow. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I mean, barefoot Gen is what twenty five years later, right? Something like that, yeah. Early eighties, right? It's, it's a similar mm-hmm. direct association of the sun with uh, with nuclear Armageddon.
1: Well, the sun Maybe. is basically a nuclear explosion in space, right? Yeah, constantly, constantly, constantly <laughs> yeah. ongoing one, yeah.
2: Right. yeah. <laughs>
0: um but it, it's interesting kind of double meaning because he's seeing the light. Yeah, which is, yeah, ordinarily a purifying thing, but it, it just brings more terror, it brings more
1: nihilism to his life. Well both of these films are are just totally possessed with death. Yeah. I thought. So I I was gonna
0: say so I've been battling with myself whether I like the original scripted ending to Dreams or the Village of the Water Mills, and I think I've fallen pretty firmly on the Village of the Water Mills.
2: No, it's I think beautiful. a lot of
0: it is Ryu's beautiful performance and the wisdom he shares. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, why do we need light at night? The evening is supposed to be dark. Mm-hmm. The beautiful scenes of that just footbridge over the water, the water so pure and clean and the children drop flowers on the big rock at the edge to commemorate the people who have passed. And it just felt so beautifully pastoral. It gave the movie... Uh, a really nice kind of st- st- arc, too. It starts with the wedding, ends with a funeral.
2: And both uh, start- processions.
0: Yeah, starts in the woods, yep. ends in a, in a meadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it starts with the memory of the past, and ends essentially with a different memory of the past, but filtered through an old man's life. And so the movie kind of resonates in a way that I think the, uh, the original ending wouldn't have resonated.
2: I think original ending would have been too polemical. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting sometimes how like necessity actually improves the art.
1: <laughs> I think live in fear is, is willing to risk polemic.
2: Oh yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Dreams, dreams is, it, it flirts with polemicism at times. Yeah. Uh, it can be a bit didactic um at moments but it does so in such a poetic way that it's just totally forgivable like like rio's speech for example uh when you when you mentioned that line with why you know why do we need light the night is supposed to be dark you know and i i thought well you know that's like the acceptance of death right like yeah yeah you know this is just everything has its season it's like it's like the the passage from corinthians you know there's a time to be born and a time to die and a time to you know
2: turn, where the birds turn, made a song turn, out of yeah, it so time to <laughs> yeah, reap, right, turn, a time turn, turn, to sow. Right.
1: yeah right so um and
2: it's an anti-war song
1: and it is an anti-war song yeah it's it's, it's like a it's not nihilistic though it's 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 uh, it's a way of overcoming one's fear and 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 being able to make peace uh with the realities of life maybe and it's not like you know you accept it in in a in a uh, in a way that you're giving up or throwing in the towel, uh, it's the realization that uh, all 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 of our lives could at any moment be snuffed out, and um, that you have to you know it's uh, it's that old saying you know like uh, seize the day you know carpe diem uh, make make the best of your life while you have it and and um stay focused on the things that matter and that's what this old man is imparting this wisdom to him that you know that sometimes the best way uh to be is to let things be uh, he he talks about you know the scientists who are trying to always improve things but they end up making yep. things worse Yeah, and you know the the n- nuclear weapons are like the most explicit example of that right
2: yeah yeah, that actually, something I was thinking about watching this film, and I had, didn't go back and really try to do a close analysis um, on it, is how color works in the film um, in that regard, because it's a very saturated film. The, the colors are extremely vivid, and there are these recurring, I mean, I actually watched the ending of the opening sequence where the kid is walking towards the rainbow several times because it's fairly clearly a, a, a visually manipulated scene. You know, he's, you know, it's, 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 he didn't shoot it in a, you know, on a real grassy knoll, like we're seeing in the, in the-, in the Yeah, in the... IL, ILM had gone and
0: did the, that's what
2: yeah. the scene that ILM worked on. But I, I, I found myself thinking more and more about the film, about how the colors echo throughout the film. I mean, a lot of those colors are repeated in the, in the costumes, in the, the peach blossom one, uh, but they're also repeated in the Mount Fuji one, in the colors right. of the contaminants with those brightly right. colored uh, gases. But then they come back again in the flowers um, at the end of the film. Uh, but I'd really, you know, I think it would really bear a really close look at that film from beginning to end to see about how he's, how those colors, how he's using those colors. Because it, it seems to me that it's it's typical of Kurosawa and that it is in many respects, a very sort of hard edge and unsentimental acknowledge, as you were saying a minute ago, Eric, about, you know, you don't know you could die any minute you know that's uh, there's no um it's not like you know judy garland somewhere over the rainbow at that, at that at that scene in that in that in that in the fox wedding it's much more sort of ambiguous what's going to happen to this kid um but the ending of the film with the brightly colored um uh the, the the you know the, the brightly colored costumes that they're wearing and the, and the music and the precision of the dance and the respectful gesture, you know, the last thing we basically see in the film before he he walks off is the, the the laying of the flowers, as Jason was talking about a few minutes ago. So there's this real, just a level of color. It seems to me, you know, sort of complexity in this film about how it's uh, how it's associating the, the visuals of the film with, on you know, the one hand, you know, the the, uh, the 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 potential of life, the the profligacy of life, the potential profligacy of life, and and fecundity of life. Um, but also the various threats that exist to it, some of which some of which are very much those of our own manufacture, like you know, the the peach blossom sequence where, you know, the story is built around the fact that this peach orchard has been cut down. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You know, and there's all the stumps left. Um, so anyway, I, that's kind of rambling. I don't really have a, like a thesis there, but it was something that, that kept on just like hitting me watching the film. And I just didn't go back and re- re- rethink about it too much.
1: Yeah I made that connection too with the elements uh being colored so that you know you could see uh the yeah. clouds and you know what benefit did it do you because by the time you saw the colors you were dead right
2: Yeah exactly uh, yeah. so what
1: was the, what was the point of it uh yeah. you know and and that's just kind of like that meaninglessness uh mm-hmm. that you know uh that he's he's pointing toward um that that we're all you know uh, that that we're all faced with at, at times of crisis um uh th- there's there's also that idea that it's like this perversion of the natural order right like the rainbow is this is this beautiful it's just light refraction that's all it is you know yeah. it's, just, it's just part of nature but it's so beautiful uh but it, again like what's the meaning of a rainbow <laughs> for example right so it, it's a sense that um humanity uh, brings in this case,
0: the I, the Kurosawa character, is gonna go mm-hmm. under the rainbow and go to Brigadoon, which is his filmmaking career, and be <laughs> able to be the another Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what that scene means to me. He's seen something magical, something mystical that happens rarely when the sun is shining and it's also raining. And that leads him to kind of discover something deeper and then goes off and you know ha, ha, to this paradise in a way that but
1: it's that existentialism that latent existentialism that's in all kurosawa right yeah. Yeah, The the rainbow in and of itself doesn't have meaning it's the meaning that we that we give to it right so yeah it's so what we bring to it um that the the scene that van gogh is painting you know it's just a scene it's it, in and of itself without the observer it's just nature in its own element right it's just nature natura natrons is that isn't that the yeah. phrase yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but once you have the 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 eye you know the artist who essentially translates it and 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 adds the human element to it and and gives it that meaning and that emotion um Frame, frames that, that, it. That's, yeah. it frames it yeah exactly
0: this was a dreams, was a surprising film to me because I didn't expect it to be so affecting. Hit me, hit me in a, a way I didn't expect really. My first thought it was a movie about Akira Kurosawa's dreams. Uh, but I already even really especially care to see that. Yeah, it sounds kind of self indulgent, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, Ricky There's... Beach had this comic about dreams, though it was entertaining enough, but. I didn't need to spend time reading those so that's fine, but no, this is profound.
2: Yeah. Yes, it really is. Uh, it's, uh, it's really, I'd forgotten to be honest, how, how good it was. Cause I haven't watched it in, I hadn't watched it in years and years before we we decided to do it as part of this. So it was revisiting it was, was kind of revelatory, to be honest.
1: Uh, I wanted to make, uh, sorry. I wanted to make one last observation about the film. and I, and what it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could talk about this movie all night. Yeah, um, I think so. But, uh, and, 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 and continuing on with, the, with, with what I was just uh, 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 talking about, but it's uh, how, it, how it's kind of a meditation on perception mm-hmm. and how one's perception changes based on how the environment around one changes uh and you see that all throughout the film i mean you know for example uh we didn't talk about the mountain climbers who are trying to make their way back to the base Mm -hmm. and they're in the snowstorm and they you know they can't see inches in front of their eyes and they're all ready to give up um and you know they collapse in exhaustion and then that uh spirit that woman spirit yeah she's a spirit uh, yeah right out of straight out of japanese folklore uh, visits him, and she's putting the those sort of party-colored blankets over him um, and saying, you know, the, the snow is warm, you know, the ice is hot, <laughs> and saying, you know, things to him which he knows not to be true. Uh, and then once she departs, the storm is lifted, and he looks around, and the base is just a maybe 10 feet away from them
2: it's right there. And they
1: were right. Yeah. It's right there. And they're ready to give up, you know, um, or even how the child in encountering those uh, spirits at the beginning of the film, how they're yeah. uh, potentially a, a threat to him, yeah. but then, but then, you know, obviously they're, they're not, and his perception of them changes and, and it's all about how, you know, we see the world and how, uh oftentimes we misinterpret things around us and that by just a simple you know uh reframing
2: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) uh, one can completely alter one's view of the world
2: yeah
0: well that's a really perfect transition to talking about i live in fear or record of a living being as as it's also called
1: well that also hinges on misperceptions. <laughs> it does. Yes, it does. It, well, it,
0: it... I wouldn't call
2: them misperceptions. Go ahead, Don. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's it's not like he's wrong to be concerned and it's one of the things that I find no. interesting.
1: I'm talking the... more or less about the climax of the film.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, misper- misperceptions in other ways too. I mean, his his sort of bland belief that the complex dysfunctional mess that he's made of his social world um, can simply be uh, papered over, and we'll all go to Brazil and live happily ever after in some sort of, you know, um, blissful uh, community um, where clearly none of the other people involved. I mean, he, he's a man who's had what at least three mistresses that we know of. Yeah, yeah, at um, least three, and uh, illegitimate children and blit it. Children and there's tension within the families. There's tension between the families. Uh, lay, even laying aside the whole thing about his 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 monomaniacal concern about nuclear war, um, his his apparent belief that you know I can I can you know all I have to do is go to Brazil and I can solve all these problems, which I thought really crystallized. You know, and I, I mean you saw this coming right the moment you hear the story about you know burning down the house. You know what's going to happen, right? But when he burns down the factory, and then the workers are like, well, wait a minute, didn't you care about us? Yeah. It's like, really? yeah. oh, yeah. There's well, the- I'll find a way to take all of you.
0: But do you- there's yeah. the shift in
2: perception. Made- He's yeah. already
0: destroyed things, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah was- I-, I read in some ways, I live in fear as being one of kurosawa's parables about what it means to live in a society and how hard it is to reflect on what you've actually done your impact you've made on others and this need for you to be coherent inside a society to 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 be to think about the larger picture it's a it's a cautionary tale in a lot of ways about you know your emotional blindness yeah uh but I think it was fascinating too because you know our main character who's played beautifully by Mifune, I think mean, Mifune is just astonishing in this really, uh, is not wrong to be afraid of nuclear holocaust. It's happened to Japan. Yeah. You know, there's tests happening in back in uh Pacific Islands. Yeah, God knows the, the fallout from that can come to Japan. I mean he may have had family members who died of cancer in the same way Kurosawa's sister died of cancer. Uh, but he's mocked for it, right? when he when he's in jail, for example, and the two prisoners in the jail are mocking him for caring so much about it about nuclear holocaust. Like, what are you worrying about this shit for? Uh, and I thought it was so powerful because it's so uh such a such a like case where, they're basically minimizing his feelings about this. This is—it's wrong for him to be so frustrated with this, so terrified of this, when it actually is a fairly rational thing to do—to be afraid of nuclear war. Uh, and yeah, so, and- you know, and there's no easy way of, of out from that other than this just kind of moral ambiguity or moral
2: confusion about how to approach it from that point. Yeah, and the film does make that point very clearly. I mean, at least twice, right? And perhaps most most tellingly, when like at the end of the film like the psychiatrist, is like, it's really disturbing because I'm really not sure (laughs) whether the problem is that he is too worried (laughs) or Mm -hmm. I'm not worried enough. Yes. You know, uh, or earlier when Harada is, should we really be judging him as mentally unbalanced because of this? I mean, sure, his fear is more extreme, but everybody has it. But what I kind of found interesting in that scene anyway is that the panel doesn't really decide to judge that he's mentally incompetent because he's mentally incompetent. I mean, the, the fact that he literally uh, physically attacks his son in the room is yeah. the kind of thing that you could point to to say that this, this is somebody who is out of control and needs to be, you know, it's more a very pragmatic matter, right? Uh, economically speaking, the family will be devastated if he's allowed to go through with this. So they're not really making a judgment of him based on a belief that he's insane, they're making, in effect, a sort of utilitarian judgment in which they're in which they're valuing you know the the, the bigger economic picture um, over well over I mean him over his concerns, but even also over because this is also a film that's very much concerned about you know protocols and you know one's status inside the family, outside the family, male, female, um, all of that's being overruled not on the on the basis of his health not on the basis of moral or ethical grounds, but on purely economic, it seems to me anyway, on purely economic grounds that he's he's committed. And yet as the film goes on, it does become increasingly clear that he's a deeply troubled man.
0: (laughs) But the family family doesn't quite love him. They love what he represents to him, but they're not willing to connect to him to understand what he's afraid of. I think in part because they might be afraid of it also afraid of what it's going to reveal about themselves or what they're ignoring uh uh, i found myself pretty sympathetic to his approach to the world to his fears yeah
2: Yeah, the film did not go out of its way to make anybody else in the film come across as you know particularly admirable right no
1: well the Takashi Shimura character Dr. Handa. Yeah, he's
2: one of the few exceptions, yeah. Oh, yeah, I want right. to talk He's a sympathetic about that character,
1: that but he's sort of like the audience.
2: Yeah, of... yeah.
1: Right, and he sympathizes with Mapune's character. Yeah. Um, I, I think in part because he can be objective about it, right? He, can, yeah. he doesn't have anything on the line, so to speak, like the family members do.
0: But he does, um, and that's what I find so fascinating about this film. I I was really excited by this movie, you can tell. <laughs> I think the real star of this film, the most important character is the Shimura character because he feels tremendous guilt for the offhanded way he just shrugged off uh, the uh, the Mafuna character's concerns, followed the law kind of mindlessly and really literally drove this man to go crazy. He painted him in a corner. Paying the Mifune character in a corner didn't allow him any opportunity to escape to this world that he was happy to go to. You know, the the, the Brazilian man was willing to, tr- was happy to trade with him, was excited to trade with him. We see in the scene where he's in the fo- in the woods yeah. or the in the field, rather, he was like thrilled to be able to move back to Japan. So, you know, the Mifune character's ability to change his own life anyway would have been something exciting for him. Uh, whether that would have actually made him happy or not, who knows. Yeah. But the Shimura character prevents him from doing that. Just says, no, 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 because of the rules of the society we live in, you're not able to, you're not allowed to do this. And you see when he's up all night and he chats with his son at the dentist's office, he's really feeling like tormented about the the decisions he's made to prevent the character from living the life he wants to live. And so you can really say Shimura's decisions are the reason the Mifune character went crazy in the end because he had no other options.
2: Do you think it's odd? This is a totally different kind of question, though. Do you think it's odd that uh, that Kurosawa chose to cast the way he did? That he made the 35-year-old Mifune, the old man, <laughs> and the, <laughs> the 50-year-old, <laughs> the the as you're saying, sort of the, you know, the, the perspective character in the film, it, it, it seems strange to me. Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
0: I I wonder if they had talked about it and they had, I mean, you know, the Mifune and Shimura are about
2: the same age, right? No, Shimura is 15 years older.
0: Oh, 15, okay.
2: He was born in 1905 and Mifune was born in 1920. Oh, Bifune thank you, was okay. 35 years old when he played that that part and uh, Shimura was 50. Hmm. I was wondering
0: if some if something came from Akiru and and Shimura playing such an older Maybe. character there.
2: I, I haven't read anything
0: about that. Do you, do you have I, I
2: honestly there? don't know. I was just really curious. I don't know. The makeup is
1: not great. <laughs> but Mafune nevertheless
2: uh is convincing because oh, it's, yeah it's a great it. yeah, I'm, not, <laughs> right. I'm, not, I'm not criticizing it from the perspective of you know Mifune yeah. playing the part well it just
1: no I I get it yeah
2: yeah it's yeah. and I'm wondering if I, I I mean I'm grasping at straws I mean Mifune is such a powerful physical presence that if you know part of, that part of what's happening there it. is is the containment yeah. you know that this I character think that was is part of it because yeah
1: if it were to be Shimura you'd be like well this guy you know I could see how he could get he could get pushed around
2: yeah mm-hmm.
1: but Mafune is such a you know he's such a presence he's such a, a he's got he's so virile yeah you know uh, that yeah. it's almost like you, you know he, how is he going to be contained and that's yeah, I mean, what he, that's what puts you as a viewer you know that's that's the sort of the dramatic tension of the film is how is this this man and he, you know even from the start from the very beginning of the film you know it's like this intensely physical performance like you know it's a, yeah. here we go yeah. with the k- Kurosawa weather the car uh, right there. Yep. Oh
0: my god, yes.
1: <laughs> the, the whole film is
2: saturated with hot. it.
1: Yeah.
2: Very <laughs> rainy. Yeah. It,
1: this, this movie is up there with uh, sweatiest movie ever.
2: Uh yeah. <laughs> <which> is, <laughs> Straight Dogs, I think yeah.
1: <laughs> Was it Straight No, the the Paul Newman film. Uh, what is it? So, no. Um, cool,
2: cool Hand Luke.
1: Luke. Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, sweatiest yeah. movie ever. Um <laughs> Uh, according to the Cheers poll, um, stray dog is a good stray
0: dog is a good shout out. Yeah, that's a it's very sweaty, sweaty yeah. movie. Yeah.
1: So, 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 uh yeah. So at the beginning of the film, you know what? While he's in the in the court, uh, you know everybody's like you know yeah. dabbing their faces and and sweating, and you can see the sweat spots and everything. And and uh, there's Buffune in this crowded room, so you know it's even hotter, even with all those bodies in there. And he's got that fan, and he's just you know. Yeah. doing this like really violently. And then he like closes it, whacks it open and he's doing it again. You know, it's just, it's just this really kind of like very physical performance. And, and it, it gets across that, that he's like, you know, he's a loaded gun, just like waiting to go off. Like, yeah, he's like half cocked through the whole yeah. film. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's like a powder cake ready right? to go off. Uh, and he does it just so wonderfully. Uh, through the entire film and then you know and then the contrast that like with the son uh the eldest son who's supposed yeah. to be the one to contain him and is, and he's this he's this little wimp yeah. you know he's like he's 90 pounds soaking wet and he never in a million years would he be able to go up against mifune so i think that was a big part of the casting was was mifune's presence is it you know was so integral to to that role
0: there's a kind of undeniability to mifune's presence where like mm-hmm. he's just like so fixated, in a way that has this kind of great intensity to it, that it prevents him from being stopped in a way. It mm-hmm. makes this tragedy even more tragic.
1: It makes us fall yeah, even right. more tragic, because he's brought to his knees. Um, what what I find so fascinating about this film and and following upon that is that sense of Japanese giri, you know the. Uh, a duty to 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 one another to yeah. society but also to one's family and so the, it's being pulled apart in this in this film at, you know at the seams um ripped apart really because of the immense amount of wealth that's on the on the line yeah and he uh is uh in the belief uh, mifune's character uh that he's fulfilling giri by yep. saving his family and his loved ones from eminent catastrophe and death and uh but in fact uh he's to them uh pig-headedly moving forward with this plan without any of their input and so he's effectively nullifying the whatever giri you know uh, whatever obligations he has to his family
2: yeah but there's a
1: really interesting tension between yeah. the two, throughout and the then, entire film,
2: the interesting tension too in the way that there's you know the contrast between you know that that theory, but the reality that we see in the family itself, right? Like you know the the feckless um, yeah, illegitimate right. son, um, or the mistress with the with the the spendthrift father, um, and I mean, what <laughs> really you you sent him to get the money, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, yeah. It's um, it's definitely
1: like a it's it's definitely like a one way street, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Straight there's down. no, yeah. yeah, There's no sense of obligation from any of them toward him, other than the fact that he's the source of income. Yeah, and yeah, I think you mentioned that earlier, uh, which, of course, is what you know why he goes to such lengths to to destroy his own factory because he's essentially nullifying their only argument against him, and he thinks so. This is the only thing that's standing in the way of me fulfilling my obligation to my family. Ironically enough. Is to remove this main impediment, which is greed. I'll I'll take it away from them. They they won't at that point, if they don't have the the factory and they don't have that source of income and they don't have that interest at hand any longer, in his mind, that's going to allow him to move forward with his plan and that they'll just fall in line after that, which is crazy. Because <laughs> if they have no sense of obligation to him, even after everything he's done done for them, then why is it they would have any newfound obligation toward him when he removes the only thing that they really care about?
0: Well, it's just a sign of his increasing lack of uh,
2: appreciation of reality. Right, yeah. he's become unmoored. Right. Yeah, and I do th- I do think the film has it does have a very sort of you know complex and nuanced attitude towards that though because you know again in burning down the factory he's taking away the thing that his kids are holding up but he's also taking away the livelihood of how many workers
0: right well that shock he has at, at yeah. giving up at destroying their livelihood that yeah. never once occurred to him never yeah. thought about the people yeah. who work for and they feel so hurt by that emotionally more than yeah. the
2: losing their work, their job it's the... yeah you could how could you do this to us but you know the, the economic exchanges in the film are, you know, when you do with that whole. I was a little confused at first. The first time I was going through, I was like, Who are these people that he's going to with this money? Oh right, he's 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 got like his allowance for his bastard son, and he's got this money that he's financing his other mistress and her daughter with. And it's like the the the, the families, those all those families are predicated on economics, um, and on him providing you know the source. You know, like uh, I need more money this month, or we need to we need to bring in more stock. We need more money this month, and he's like, Well, we're going to Brazil. You don't need more money. Are going to pursue, dude. <laughs> um. So it's yes, you know he's he he's doing what he perceives of as fulfilling his duty to his family, but it's fairly clear that he's really only been fulfilling that duty economically. I mean, after all, again, how mm-hmm. many mistresses? The the, the the I I I can't remember the name of the actors who played his his wife, but what a great performance of the of of the humiliation that right. he has put his wife through. Through all of this, you yeah, know, just I mean, her, her physical posture is, uh... yeah, she looks like
1: a beaten down woman. Yeah, you know, I mean, he he, he opens the the kids' mail. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, every every other time, every every other time he addresses them, he's calling them fools. Yeah, uh, you, you know, so he's not he's not an he's not a uh, entirely admirable person.
0: He's not at all an admirable uh,
1: person. No, he's he's, not he's at adrift. All, right?
0: He's adrift. He, he doesn't know a... what he's doing, and God only knows how he was able to build up that factory in the post-war period. Also, you right, know, it was well, built on graft and and uh, you know crime,
1: possibly. I mean, he's very stubborn. Uh, he's very short-tempered. Uh, but you know, at the same time, you also see isn't there that scene where he's like gently holding that that baby?
2: Scene with the, we you hear the three planes go over right and then the, you hear the, the planes crash of thunder and he what he does is he leaps to protect the infant the right the, his his I'm assuming his uh, his bastard son so he he,
0: he clearly yeah. served in the war mm-hmm. right. right he was he was involved in the war so the bomb also hits him hard because this is a, an attack on him his yeah. love for the emperor his inability to move on post war in some way.
1: He also would have survived the Kanto earthquake, mm. which in the 1920s, which killed 100,000 people in one day. Yeah, so I this mean, man he, is not unfamiliar with sudden.
2: <laughs> no, he would have been through, <laughs> I mean, catastrophic. It's, yeah. It's set in 1950. It was made in 1955, and he's got to be playing a man who's at least in his 60s. Right. Right. So, I mean, he's, he, he would have been through both world wars. Not that that was as big a deal for Japan, but still, you know, he's seen a lot um, uh, of, of, of that. And, you know, that's, that that, the story requires him to be old, I guess. But I mean, that's part of it is, you know, he's got all that, uh, that, you know, 20th century history of, of, of mass destruction and brutality that he is much more. And I think, I don't know. I mean, it's 2023 now and, before everything started happening in ukraine i think we'd largely lost that but i can remember even in the 60s and 70s because i'm old enough that um the the kind of fear that he had was still not uncommon even in like north america um so in the context of 1955 it's make less for and for that matter i mean one thing i found myself thinking about was when did godzilla come out relative to this film and it was actually the year before you know yeah. the great the great film of you know nuclear horror literally one year before this film came out. So right anyway, and, sorry. More, and more one of his, his best way. friends directed it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so- I,
1: mean, I mean, He's not an entirely unsympathetic unsy- character. I mean, I, when when you when you contemplate all of these contexts that yeah. we were just discussing, I mean, you could certainly make the case that yeah, he's he's maybe not. You know the the most upstanding guy. This is another reason why Shimura could have never played this character. Yeah, because I don't think Shimura would have had it in him to play a character like
2: this. No, it's not his not really his wheelhouse. But I, not I, his I,
1: wheelhouse at all. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: i was wondering if you, what you could say about him is that he's he's right, but in multiple wrong ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, he's right in multiple wrong ways. I like that.
1: He's he's also in, incredibly frustrated by th- not only the existential threat of a nuclear holocaust, but also w- with what Japan has become. Because, yep. like you he said, he's in his sixties. I mean, he's watched Japan transform incredibly fast. Um, this would have been the post-war period. Uh, Japan had been brought to its knees. Uh, its imperialist period had failed miserably. Uh, the emperor had been dethroned, essentially. Yeah. Um, there were the all of these new Western arcane to the Japanese mind laws that they had to obey. Like that's illustrated. Yeah. At the beginning of the, which is an immense source of frustration for him as well. So when you when you put all of those pieces together, it's like yeah, kind of see why this guy is going a little bit off the deep end here. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and then on top of that, he's middle aged or older. His family yeah. doesn't appreciate him. He's kind of a drift. He's not happy in his marriage. Otherwise, he wouldn't have three mistresses. Says something about his own wandering eye about things. He's a man that's essentially rootless, right? There's created roots for everyone else around him, though, which is so interesting, right? But you can see why the people he's created roots for kind of don't, they don't reject him as much as they just don't. They're used to not caring about him. That makes sense.
1: To to put it in cultural context, it was not, Was not frowned upon for a man of his stature, a wealthy Japanese businessman, to have mistresses. Just, I mean, there's a cultural difference there. So, I mean,
2: yeah, but to bring them into the home and legitimize them, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I mean, but morally speaking, I mean, yeah, yeah, it it was not. It was not a, a, in you know, frowned upon per se. It was actually, in in many instances, it was encouraged uh you know it was it was a it was a uh it was kind of like a um stature thing you know yeah, and he was uh, a wealthy man so it was right. not unexpected it was yeah it's sort of expected in japanese society that a man of his of his of his position would have uh you know mistresses and illegitimate children <laughs> i think in his case you know Shimura were,
0: character doesn't though no, the Shimura character is happy, right? Has a business he shares with his kid, and they appear to be close, they appear to live together. Uh, so he is coming to this from uh, a much more traditional, not traditional, a uh, much more kind of nuclear family sort of standpoint. So he's actually has trouble understanding Nakajima's life, the Mifune character's life. He's outside of that, he he he. He can appreciate intellectually, but I don't think he can relate emotionally because it's just not the way he lives his life. It's interesting he's a family court uh, adjudicator, whatever the term would be, because he doesn't seem to have a lot of experience for with people who are different from him. He lives in a very decent
2: world. Which is maybe why he's a dentist. He has this very sort of, you know, medical and clean and antiseptic uh Mm -hmm. world that he inhabits
1: he's also at the beginning of the film about to uh perform dentistry on a small child so you know it it instills in the viewer that this is a trustworthy character that he's a he's kind of like a a gentle uh person who who can be trusted to uh you know um To behave in a in, in a certain in a certain fashion, in quite in contrast to, like I said, Mafune's character, who, who uh, even though he you know grasps the the baby when the planes fly over, you you probably wouldn't want to leave your kids alone with this guy. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. This this is you know the, the, it it really crystallizes the uh, the desire to save the lives of his family, but in a way, it also crystallizes the the extremely narrow parameters of, of that. Right, yeah. it's strict. It's strictly linked to this threat of nuclear annihilation. But it, it seems that in terms of the day-to-day engagement with them as people and as children, that's been largely absent. Um, and that, in its own way, is is a kind of a profound truth. Because you might think, well, how can you, how can both things be true of one person? Well, obviously, they really can. You can simultaneously deeply, deeply care about people, but also um, not treat them well Mm -hmm. yeah we all have times when we do that
0: ourselves yeah
1: sure most pronouncedly with with your family
2: absolutely yeah because there's a
1: yeah there's an intimacy and there's a trust there and there's an acceptance there and I, you know obviously you in relationship to you know you treat strangers better than you treat your your family members, you know, they, they, they don't, you, you put on that face for the outside world, right? That, that, that mask that comes off uh, when you walk in the front door. Um, So certainly I think Shimura's character has perhaps a skewed perception of him Mm -hmm. uh, in that sense. Um, I think it, it brings up, really interesting questions about duty uh, one sense of of duty and uh to what extent uh that sense of duty uh at what point does that sense of duty become problematic or or self-defeating yeah that, that you can be so controlling that you drive people away
2: yeah there's no simple binary in this film which is not surprising for Kurosawa yeah <laughs>
1: yeah well
0: I mean uh, Nakajima is not that different from the salary man of the bad sleep well yeah right he's he's living this morally compromised life, but that's a life that he has felt like he has to live. Um, he's obviously been successful financially, not emotionally, but you know people don't tend to think about their emotional, well-being especially men in japan in the 1950s it's kind of superfluous i mean he probably thought of himself as a survivor of the post-war period what did it as i mentioned before like what did it take for him to build this business during a time when he obviously had started the business either continued a business already there or started the business in the immediate post-war period when the country was still occupied yeah uh and regardless of when I mean he had to have, he had to have some moral compromise to stay alive and to keep these people working for him, so uh, yeah, I think he's just such an interestingly like complex person in that way.
1: He, you need he, a complex yeah
0: he's not he's not a morally positive or negative person. He does a lot of things that are really well intentioned. He's really motivated out of what he sees as the most important thing for his family. I have to wonder, too, how much of his fear of the bomb is also fear of him not being able to change his own life. Him him seeing some sort of void at the center of his existence and wanting to do something to just try a different life.
1: Fear of his own death.
0: Yeah that if he doesn't change, if he doesn't change, he's going to have, uh, uh, he was not going to be able to have the funeral we see for the old lady in, in dreams in a yeah. way. To circle back again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think his motivation for going to Brazil is necessarily tied to the bomb. He says it is, but I think it might be tied also to his kind of existential, fear of who he is at this point in his life.
1: Does Ryu in dreams provide the solution to Nakajima's uh, quandary?
2: That's a good question.
0: No, I think Nakajima is the man who he's complaining about, who Ryu's complaining (laughs) about. He's the one who sees the world as a commodity to consume i mean he is a he does own what a, a a factory right it's a foundry yeah a foundry yeah so he's using raw but materials it, from the earth
1: but is it but is his <laughs> message that, that that one of what i was referring to earlier about you know like uh, for example that corinthians sort of acceptance of the natural world and the natural order of things you don't necessarily have to accept, um, you know the the, uh, you know, for example, she, Ryu's character is decrying the very sort of rape of nature that a that a industrialist uh, represents, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: but you know the the the. The alternative is to live uh, simply in uh, harmony with nature, and that you can do that without necessarily allowing yourself to become uh, to put put yourself into a position where uh, the destruction of nature uh, makes you unable to enjoy the, the the you know enjoy your life essentially.
0: You just gave me a really great insight, which is that Nakajima runs a foundry. Foundry consumes raw materials from the earth. Basically, he's dependent on mines and things that destroy the earth. He wants to go to Brazil to become a farmer, to be mm-hmm. back to being in harmony with the earth. But he's never been able to be in harmony with the earth. The earth has actually been something that's attacked him in his life as you were describing with the earthquake with the being born in a country where he was engaged in a war. Uh, he's a man who just has just is really not able to create that harmony that Ryu is talking about. And so yeah. his dream to go to a different place where he feels like he can live a more primitive life mm-hmm. is in some ways trying to go back to what the society has been trying to teach him.
1: Maybe also to go back to what Japan was before.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting that yeah, pre
0: 1856 or whatever. Yeah.
2: Right. He doesn't really, those who have given an awful lot of thought to just from a purely practical point of view, when I get to Brazil, what am I going to do? I mean we see the other side of it and I'm wondering if that's why we you know I see the farmer coming to Japan and visiting and looking at the land that he wants to buy and think okay I'll put cattle here and you know he's he has a concrete plan going forward Nakajima's plan is let's go to Brazil mm-hmm. and that's it so really
1: the, the options that Kurosawa presents in 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 response to potential nuclear catastrophe are, escapism mm-hmm. or complacency
2: yeah neither of They're, which the film suggests is, uh, is adequate
1: yeah neither of yeah. which are adequate
2: yeah which is why this film is a tragedy
0: yeah there's there's no right answer really yeah mm-hmm. because once your eyes are open to the fl- to the flaws in the world the terrors of the world you're in you can't help but live in this existential crisis
1: but what I'm proposing is that there is an answer. Okay. It's just not given in. It's just not given in this film. Yeah. It's given in dreams In dreams. Yeah.
2: <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. That's what I'm. So, I, I,
1: I love the the book ending of the sci-fi yeah. in this film. You know, Dom, you were talking about the, uh, you know, his belief when he's in the in the psychiatric uh, ward at the hospital that he's on another planet. Yeah, and then when he sees the sun, that that's the Earth that's exploding in nuclear conflagration, and then at the beginning of the film, you know, this is the 1950s, and you hear the theremin playing. Yeah, and, which was such a a a well worn uh sci-fi uh, uh musical uh musical trope, yeah, trope, yeah. At the time, I thought that was just so great.
0: <laughs> Hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah. I Live in Fear is the second of 10 straight films Kurosawa made with Mifune in 11 years. just wanted to point that out. And it's an incredible run. Yes, it is. And it kind of, the first few movies zigzag a little bit because he did Seven Samurai, yep. I Live in Fear, Throne of Blood, and then Lower Depths. So a big action film with a lot of intense drama and a quieter film. Um, and then back to Hidden Fortress, and then uh, the analogy breaks down. But it's interesting how he takes
1: this kind of zigzag
0: route in his first few films.
1: What uh, did you, what did you guys make of the, of the final scene in I Live in Fear? Did you, did you, uh, were, did you find that to be a satisfying ending
2: to the film? I found it to be a very Kurosawa kind of ending. <laughs> um, you know, I might, I might liken it to the ending of, of Ron uh, with, you know, we have the, you know, the, the Edgar analog, I forget the character's name in the movie, the, the, the blind man, like standing on the edge of the cliff, right. We can go either way, you know, and at the end of that film, we have, we're, it's we're inside a mental institution. We have stairs going upstairs. That is the last shot, right. As a, yeah, Shimura going out. The uh, ramp, yeah, yeah up yeah. and down the ramp. And yeah. the, so we're, we're almost just a baby in this, on her back this architectural space end. where, you know, we go up to where uh, Shimura is is uh, incarcerated um, or back down out into the street. And, uh, and, you know, the film hasn't, you know, from the beginning, of the, one of the things that struck me at the beginning of the film is you know, these protracted shots of crowded streets and streetcars. It's a very, you know, it's very urban. It's a very um, depersonalized uh, world. Um, I mean I, I, do, I think I found it satisfactory in the sense that you know, the end of the film basically refuses to let go of the fact that you know, there isn't a simple solution here. you know, we can, uh, uh, it, it's convenient perhaps to put uh, you know, him away up here um, and forget about him. Um, because, you know, the the conditions in which he's been placed by his society have given him really no place to go. Except out of his mind, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, it, it's not a you know that that doesn't present it as a happy ending, as, as nor nor should it be, right? But you know, Herattas slowly, and I love the sound of the feet you know, click, click, click. It has that you know almost ominous uh, tick-tock kind of feel to it. But there's also you know her going up to see him. Um, so it's balanced. You know, it's it's. I'd say it's predominantly, you know, uh, uh, an unflinching, you know, bleak kind of ending. But as is often the case with Kurosawa, even bleakness has that um, potential, right? Uh, oh, yeah. And I mean, that that's to me what one of the great things about dreams is. You know, the coda centers on the funeral of this hundred and three-year-old woman. But you know, the final sequence there is the placing of the flowers on on the rock. Um, and uh, as you were saying earlier, that, you know, the pastoral environment, it's, it's a similar, similarly ambiguous ending, I think, but it's probably skews the other way um, in terms of uh, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic leaning. So, yeah, I, I do, I did find that quite a, a to be honest, uh, the further I got into that film, the more I, I was satisfied by it. Quite early on in, uh, in uh, um, I Live in Fear, I was, I was sort of thinking this is not really. Kurosawa's it seems kind of on the nose Um, Mm -hmm. you know it's uh, it seems it's competent and everything but uh, it's only in the latter half of the film that I really found myself engaging with it and um, yeah so I I personally was satisfied with the ending
0: on my second watch I found it really profoundly moving Mm -hmm. and especially the ending the more I thought about the complexity of the Mifune character and what everything is that he's dealing with and the way he's able to express himself. In terms of the ending, did either of you immediately think of High and Low, the ending of High and Low, where the with the criminal behind bars being interrogated when, you're, when you watch the end of I Live in Fear? Because that's the first thing that popped to my mind. But I think that's a more nihilistic ending where you know the the criminal effectively is condemned to life in prison for poverty. Mm-hmm. Right. Um I live in fear, I think uh I I think it's a tragedy because of the way Mufuni character Mufuni's character falls. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a tragedy because he's never given any opportunity to express himself in a way that's meaningful to him i think he's a man who's so strangled by his own way of looking at the world he can't see another perspective and the only thing he was able to do given that was to go crazy because he's in a state of profound existential loss and then on top of that the Shemur character walking out clearly feels a massive amount of guilt for putting him in that position yeah. And I think it's a sh- it's been a shattering experience for him. And so I see him, I think he goes up to go out up the ramp, and then it goes out to our left, if I remember right. Uh and it just seems like he is just so weighted down by the world. Yeah. But then the mistress comes in with a baby strapped to her back. Yeah. And the very last character we see in the film is the baby. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, I was struggling with like, okay, so first of all, the mistress goes to visit him. And I think it's kind of clear that no one had been going to visit his, right. him, but she goes to visit him. So right there, he's not completely alone. And then there is a sense of potential rebirth in the form of the baby yeah. who maybe is able to not have these feelings, be able to move on in some way. But of course, I'm also thinking about intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and the way the trauma of having a father who's essentially broken uh, will resonate through this child's life. So uh, I think it might be one of his darkest endings. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's quite satisfying.
1: Oh, yeah. I think I think it's very interesting that it takes place in this, this liminal space.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and Don, you may have mentioned that already. Um, I didn't use the word
2: liminal, but yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a staircase, right? It's a it's a place uh, on your way away from somewhere or or towards someplace else. Uh, it's transitional, yeah. Uh, and what he seems to be saying, you know, with this just very simple um, image of the staircase, is that you know we're at uh, we are at a crossroads. Yeah. Uh, at this moment, we can go up with the with the the hope of of future life which you know the, the the mistress with the baby is going up the staircase or we could go down uh which is toward resignation um uh so it, it's just such a powerful ending I I just it's one of my favorite Kurosawa endings that's why I was interested of of how uh you guys felt about it um uh, he's and, a and mas-
0: ending- i'm gonna say one one thing quickly he's a mm-hmm. master of endings oh yeah it's one thing that's, that's come completely clear watching all his films as part of this project i don't think there's a single one that doesn't have a masterful ending
1: quite in contrast to shinoda who i think is very difficult with his endings i well and, I'm often- and then and then also yeah
0: right also think about the so he finished seven samurai right before this right think about the ending of seven samurai it doesn't end with the victory it ends with the the heroes being basically sent out of the town Mm -hmm. and and uh and the the tombs yeah
1: yeah and the ending of dreams is absolutely masterful it's it's so subtle it's just such a simple uh you know, I mean, aside from that closing shot of the of the floating weeds under un, you know, in
2: it the water. The credits, yeah.
1: Or the grass. I'm sorry, the grass that's right. Um but the just that very simple image of the Kurosawa character placing the flowers on the stone.
2: Yeah.
1: And this whole you know, and, and you think about it and you're like, God, that's kind of like, oh, it's cliched, whatever flowers. Uh, and it's marking a place where somebody's died but it's that, it's that that idea of the flower being this fragile yeah transitory thing and then the stone is a, this permanent thing but the stone is cold and unfeeling it yep. may be it may last until the end of time but the flower yeah is this thing of beauty and, mm-hmm. and of radiance and it, and it's and part of its beauty is its is its fleeting nature Yeah. And it's that idea of human life as being this precious thing that is just a momentary thing on on this planet.
2: Yeah.
1: Um which is going to outlast us all. And so it's just such a both of these films watching them, I was just like, these are just two of the greatest
2: endings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really amazing.
1: For completely different yeah just and for completely different reasons too but just yeah. just these very simple images and they just open up of just an incredible amount of of thought and 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 uh contemplation yeah and it's just it's sublime it's it's just the highest the highest thing you can uh, expect from art
0: <laughs> well i will close with this point because you just brought this up uh, on the dreams DVD. There's also a short film made by one of Kurosawa's longtime collaborators and she travels around the world and talks to some of the greatest directors in film history about Kurosawa's work. So she talks to Kurosami. She talks to Julie Taymor, uh, She talks to Miyazaki. And one thing that Miyazaki says is I admire his precision. It's all so precise. Every yep. image is perfectly composed and perfectly thought through. Yeah. And I found that to be really moving, coming from a filmmaker of the quality of Miyazaki. Miyazaki said he Kurosawa was his favorite director. There's a bunch of other great directors on there too, obviously, uh, Scorsese for one, <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> who you would expect. Uh, it's well worth seeking out if you can find it. Uh, what's it up. called i'm looking at the title now because i just want just called kurosawa's way
1: hmm.
0: and um clint eastwood miyazaki bertolucci uh martin scorsese bong Jun who bong Jun ho uh, who talks about how high and low is his favorite film Mm-hmm. No surprise there, right? No, not really. <laughs> Kirostami, Julie Tamor, Theo Angelopoulos, uh, Sukamoto, Inurado, John Wu, and Mohammed Kalakian. It's a really interesting group of folks. And it's directed by Catherine Cadu, who would, I think was his kind of, it, they called her her script girl kind of right hand and she worked with him for many years anyway very very uh insightful what are we going to talk about next time
1: we were going to do lower depths and the idiot
2: yeah i think you're right
0: yeah okay Mm
1: -hmm. all right i hope
0: we can get together in more than
2: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i apologize for being so inaccessible thank you yeah okay so it's always a real pleasure talking
1: with
0: you Such a great discussion.
1: Great, thanks guys.